0: Hello, 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 and welcome to this, the Worcester Talking Magazine look here for May 2022. My name is Barry and with me today is Alan. Hi. Hi, it's a bit more than that, Alan. Cheerful, gay. <laughs> oh, not gay. Right, okay, hi. <laughs> and uh, Kate.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Uh, right, as usual, I would like to remind everybody... That in the back room here, we have many others that keep this ship afloat. Carol Hartle, for one. And the Worcester Talking News chairman, Roger Knight, who I, very, I don't know whether he's ever mentioned anymore, but he's a fine chap and uh, he was once mayor and he does a very good job for us. And I don't think we ever mention him, very well, not very often, if ever, Chris Luckham, who's our secretary and accounts manager. Right, Alan... Have you done anything exciting over the last few months since we've been on the air?
2: Um, I've rejigged my training program.
0: Oh yeah, what are you doing now?
2: I'm doing some more weight training in the in the guise of indoor rowing.
0: Really? Yeah. Have you got an indoor rower, a rower, obviously? Not yet,
2: but I'm about to purchase one. Well,
0: how do you guys do in it if you haven't got a rower? <laughs>
2: I'll go to the local gym.
0: Oh, I see, I see, I see. <laughs> hey, what have you done over the last few months?
1: Um, I looked after you with your broken arm. <laughs> yes, thank you and very much. Uh, yes, that's cheerful. Um, oh, I've been baking and I've been reading a lot and um, also exceeded the speed limit. Oh, <laughs> by yeah. doing thirty four miles an hour in a thirty limit, so I did the um the online uh quiz i well, want quiz question uh, and teaching uh thing that they run uh which is a two and a half hour session with lots of other people from all over the country uh and actually, I learned a lot from it it was very very um interesting it was it was very good um and uh, it surprised me a lot of the things that uh, i learnt um uh not major things thank goodness but um the smaller things that uh, you tend one tends to overlook like, like driving uh, on the left <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like <laughs> uh, when there are street lights it doesn't matter where you are you always drive at 30 miles an hour. Now I didn't realise that because sometimes uh, you know it's a nice, e- nice area, and nice and wide, and everything else, and you tend to creep into the into the above 30s. But apparently, if there are street lights, you do not. You stay uh, below 30. So, um, uh, and lots of other things I've been doing, of course, and a bit of gardening too. So that's me.
0: The little ringing you can hear is Alan who's desperately trying to turn off his telephone and hasn't managed yet. <laughs> it my level of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time since he retired from the BBC. I don't know what he's doing nowadays. Anyway, I've just given you a little story, Alan, before we get down to the major stories. Yes. And I'd like you to read that one, sure.
2: Okay, this looks interesting. A Pakistani pigeon,
0: I'm not quite sure how he knew
2: he was Pakistani, but anyway, he was arrested by the Indian law enforcement on suspicion of being a spy. The bird flew over the contentious border and was apprehended due to a suspicious ring around its ankle printed with numbers. The numbers were actually the cell phone number of the pigeon's owner. After a thorough investigation, the pigeon was deemed not a threat to national security, and was set free. It was just an innocent bird, police told Reuters. But before you laugh it off, you should know that this wasn't the first case of avian espionage in the area. In 2016, a pigeon was taken into Indian custody after it was found with a note threatening Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Well... (laughs)
0: If they haven't got anything better to do but arrest pigeons. (laughs) Right, Kate, you've got a little story as well, haven't you? Uh,
1: Yes, cats are just as trainable as dogs, apparently. Most people do not train their cats because they don't know how or have heard the myth that cats don't listen or learn, says Russell Hartstein, a certified dog and cat behaviourist and trainer. However, nothing could be further from the truth cats love training and learning just like dogs so the best of luck to anybody because we've got a cat and he just does as he pleases quite frankly and uh, um, the only thing he likes to do is eat and sleep and sit with the uh, couple of cats next door and pass the time of day just goodness knows what they're talking about but they seem to be getting on quite well for hours on end and that's that's it. all we, we run to in training. Right. Now are toads
0: smart? Well, this one perhaps (laughs) found this lady's pair of running shoes that she had in her home just just inside the door. And um, the toad hopped in and hopped into the shoe and made it his home. (laughs) And uh, she thought, OK, he'd only do it for a night or two and uh, then he'd hop out and off but uh, he didn't no he stayed there until eventually he went off to hibernate okay that's it but no jabber this toad was called jabber <laughs> came back the next year <laughs> and went back to the shoe again and spent the next year sitting there so they're not so stupid toads or are they <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps it was, a, oh, I don't know, it must have been a nice shoe. Not obviously up, he was not to- totally at
2: home. <laughs> <laughs> totally,
0: totally at home. Oh, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, you've got another story there.
2: Uh, I've got the story about the pub. Is that the one you would That's like? That's the one,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah okay yeah.
2: then. <clears throat> this is, uh, comes under the heading of Nostalgia. Can I have a pint? As a county that was once awash, and in part still is, with orchards and hop yards, Worcestershire has always been a natural territory for the drink-maker. Apples, pears, plums and hops, plus anything found in the hedgerows, and occasionally the long grass, have over the years all combined to make some potent brews. Some so potent that in the 1600s, the parson at Inkborough, a fellow named Edward Pierce got so merry drinking one called Lambswool that he chased the landlady of a local pub all round her bar and behaved not quite like a a clergyman at least Lambswool a spiced ale warmed in kettles with crab apples floating in it had an innocent enough name but if you tackled viper's broth that was your own fault even so it was very popular in rural Worcestershire in the 18th century. One recipe from 1738 really did start with, first, take one viper. What a recipe. <laughs> Apparently the steak was dried, then skinned, put into a saucepan with a quart of water and boiled gently to a point pint and a half. Then a chicken, stripped of its skin and fat, was added the liquid which was boiled again and the drink finally poured out after first having the scum taken off. I don't remember that one in Fanny and Johnny's cookbook. Mm -hmm. In the Vale of Evesham, a very potent homemade speciality was plum jerkum. Extra special because if the plum stones had not been removed during the making and were crushed into the drink, it became narcotic. This led Barrow's Worcester Journal in 1901 to warn that after consuming only a small glass, if a person is determined to proceed, he should submit himself to some good and reliable test. For instance, let him try to say six thick thistle sticks. I made it, I did it. (laughs) Plum Jerkin was so terribly dangerous one wonders why people are bold enough to drink it unless they take the precaution to go to bed and strap themselves in first. (coughs) Another drink that took no prisoners was Wobble, popular in the north of the county, where cottages often carry signs, Wobble sold here. It was the last shut of the brew from the breweries. The first was ale, the second was beer, and the third, Wobble, which still contained enough balm for the poorer folk to buy it and improve it. Of course, the oldest drink in the area is cider, known to be made for many centuries. Mature cider, taken at breakfast and then at supper with toast, was claimed to produce longevity. Dr Griffin, who had a large practice in Ledbury around 1880, always maintained that half a crown spent on cider is the best prescription for a long life. Well, go tell that to the NHS.
0: Yeah, sort of. I like drinking, but I don't think I'll give those a miss, especially the Viper one, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, Five African grey parrots, Billy, Eric, Tyson, Jade and Elsie, recently had to be separated for encouraging each other to swear. <laughs> swear at patrons at the Lincolnshire, Lincolnshire Wildlife Centre in the UK. We are quite used to the parrots wearing, but we've never had five at the same time. And for some reason, these five relish it, Steve Nichols, the zoo chief executive, told the AP. People were mainly entertained by the potty mouth parrots. potty mouth parrots? Mm-hmm. potty mouth parrots. When the parents tell you to... Off. <laughs> it amuses people very highly. It brought big smiles to a really hard year, he said. Yeah. I saw yeah, shot great, you know. <laughs> but for the sake of the children, the zoo decided it was best to put the birds in separate enclosures until they can behave better. <laughs> Jane, or oh Kate, I beg your pardon, Janey Kate. Right. You have local
1: superstitions, please. Oh, right, OK. Uh, this looks interesting, right? Um, this is a Mike Price story, so some of you may have heard it, but we'll we'll read it anyway because it's quite a, it's quite interesting. A few centuries ago, especially in the poorer quarters of towns or deeply rural villages, lots of superstitions and strange beliefs abounded around childbirth. In fact, worrying about them was probably a great form of contraception. One of the more bizarre in Worcester was that if a baby girl in a family was baptised before a boy was conceived, then in middle age she would grow a beard, presumably giving a nod to the belief that the head of the family should always be a man. Although that has been given short shrift for quite a while, thank goodness, and I bet Budicea didn't much take to it either, Other oddball dictums included that the new baby should never be weighed, otherwise it would surely die, that it should never have its nails cut, instead if they grew too long they should be bitten off, that a baby should never have its hair cut or something unlucky would happen to it, and that it should never see itself in a mirror. Apparently attending a childbirth in black forebode evil to a baby. While if the baby cried at the baptism, it would be a good singer. If it neither cried nor moved, it would die early. Oh dear. To ensure a newborn's rise in society, the baby had to be carried to a story higher before it was taken downstairs. If there was no higher story than the nurse had to then the nurse had to climb on a chair or up a step-ladder with the child in her arms. customs which obviously predated health and safety, but the existence of which were confirmed in the most unlikely quarters many years after the birth. An old lady whose grandmother had been nursed to the Baldwin family in Beaudley related the tale that when Stanley Baldwin was born in eighteen sixty seven she got upon a chair and lifted baby Stanley gently up until his head touched the beams of the ceiling. She couldn't say it worked every time, but it did very well for him because Stanley Baldwin went on to become a major figure in British politics and served three terms as Prime Minister, of course. In urgent cases, when the baby was in danger of death, baptism was sometimes carried out by the midwife and that could lead to all kinds of fun and games when names came to be entered in the church register. Rather unkindly at Elmley Lovett near Droitwich, two babies who died almost immediately after birth were simply named Creature by the midwife, while in Worcester there was a more humorous story when a midwife supplied the name Robert for a baby, which was patently a little girl. The local clergyman recorded that the christening had been carried out by Ebriatus Dementat, a tactful hint that the midwife had been blind drunk at the time. (laughs) Well, I've just handed out some scripts here,
0: so uh, we're going to get the acting now. Um, These are um, things that were actually said in a court of law, but in America, um, which are quite funny, um, hopefully, and uh, we're now going to play um, each in turn the part of the lawyer... And the witness um so we've got quite a few so we do five and then we go on to another story um right uh, the first uh, um the first uh, little story is from between me and alan i'm playing the lawyer and alan uh, play the witness here we go do you recall the time that you examined the body
2: Uh, The autopsy started around 8.30pm.
0: And Mr Denton was dead at the time?
2: Well, if not, he was by the time I finished.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, okay. Well, you've got the general idea of what these are going to be like now, yeah. Right, um, the second one is between me and Alan again, Okay. Now, sir, I'm sure you are an intelligent and honest man. Thank you.
2: If I weren't under oath... I'd return the compliment.
0: (laughs) OK. This one is between Alan and Kate as the witness.
1: Uh, Can you describe the individual? He was about medium height and had a beard. Uh, Was this a male or a female? Well, unless the circus was in town, I think I'm going to go with male. (laughs) Uh, This one's between me and Kate. What happened then? He told me, he says, I have to kill you because you can identify me. And did he kill you? No.
0: <laughs> it's tough, isn't it? And Alan and Kate.
2: What was the first thing your husband said to you that morning? He said,
1: where am I, Cathy? And why did that upset you? My name's Susan. <laughs>
0: These are funny. OK, uh what we're we gonna do next. Um right, okay. This is is this is quite a, a long um story and we're gonna split it between the three of us. And um it's a uh, it's a story that has oh, two okay. stories combined and it's um in Andrew's Square Droit, Droitwich there's a statue of Edward Winslow, who was Edward Winslow. Well, I didn't know. Edward Winslow and his wife, apparently, were two of the 102 passengers who, in 1620, sailed to America on the Mayflower. This is his story, along with that famous ship.
1: Kate, will you begin? All right, yes. Edward Winslow was born eighteenth of October, fifteen ninety five, and was baptized two days later on the twentieth of October at saint Peter's Church, Droitwich, in Worcestershire; he was the eldest son of Edward Winslow and his wife Magdalene. The Winslow estate in Kemsey was called Kurzweil; his father was a salt merchant, and was under sheriff of the town; Edward was fortunate enough to get a fine education in wealthy Worcester then a cathedral and a wool producing city at its peak in trade and commerce. Education was a privilege of the rich, thanks to a scholarship Edward was schooled between 1606 and 1611 at the King's School. Students had to be already literate with an aptitude for learning. Edward's time at King's School set him up for his epic journey abroad the, aboard the Mayflower and for life schooling took place in the magnificent college hall which was once the refectory for the monks based at the cathedral monastery the school days lasted around 11 hours with lessons in latin, rhetoric, history, geography, mythology and music when breaks in learning were allowed by the masters pupils would walk around the cloisters where they had to be be of a gentle manly appearance and free from all lowness When Edward Winslow left King's Worcester, he became a printer's apprentice in London, where he began to help a religious group called the Separatists. This group thought the Church of England was still too Catholic and their views eventually made them leave Great Britain for Leiden in Holland to join the English Exile Separatist Church and help Elder William Brewster with his underground illicit printing activities. In 1618, Brewster and young Edward Winslow were responsible for a religious tract called the Perth Assembly that was circulated in England. It was critical of the English king and his church bishops, which caused an angry King James to order Brewster's arrest, sending English government agents to Holland to try to find and seize him. The pilgrims had bad had bad fortune in this, as Elder Brewster was forced to hide, first in Holland, then in England, from the agents. Just when the Pilgrims needed his leadership in preparation for their departure for America. On April twenty seventh, sixteen eighteen, Winslow married in Leiden Elizabeth, uh, in Leyden, a lady called Elizabeth Barker. He being called a printer from London on the, the marriage certificate. Winslow quite soon became a leading member of the English Exiles and was one of four men, the others being William Bradford, Isaac Allerton and Samuel Fuller, who became responsible for arranging the terms for the transportation of the Leiden Congregation to America. Their London agents were John Carver and Robert Cushman, about whom records suggest they were a little shady. Thomas Weston... A London merchant, who had connections with the Leyden Group, was to help finance the voyage in the hope that the Mayflower would return to England with a profitable cargo. For the pilgrims, the trip preparations became quite time-consuming and taxing on everyone's patience and pocketbook due to their financial schemes. Thomas Weston tried to, in- that he, Thomas Weston tried to introduce... These lengthy delays slowly used up what moneys they had saved for their journey. It has been suggested in several accounts of the voyage that during the preparations the pilgrims demonstrated an extraordinary talent for getting duped. In this country
0: it seems hard to understand today that people would risk their lives to fight and possibly die for their religious beliefs. Yet yeah. early in the 17th century other than the pilgrims taking their perilous journey to America, probably the best-known example of this again against James I was the gunpowder plot 15 years earlier, the failure of which led to all the conspirators losing their lives. But we get fireworks, night. Alan, you have more details for us about the pilgrims' eventual voyage on the Mayflower.
2: Yes, I do. The eventual plan <coughs> was this. Excuse me. There will be two ships allocated to ship the group to America the Mayflower and the Speedwell. The Mayflower was to sail from London to Southampton with her 65 passengers and the Speedwell would sail from Holland with the Leiden Congregation. It was planned for the two ships to meet on the 22nd of July 1620 and fully loaded set sail for America six or seven days later. However, The run of bad luck that beset this group from the beginning was destined to continue, as it was for quite some time to come. On its voyage to Southampton, the Speedwell sprang a bad leak that, on reaching Southampton, needed to be repaired. This meant their departure was delayed until the 5th of August. And guess what? Shortly after leaving, Speedwell sprang another leak that necessitated the ship's return but even more repairs. Again, they made a new start, only for the speedwell to spring yet another leak. Once again, they had to return for repairs, but this time to Dartmouth. After another interminable delay, the ships set sail once more. And surprise, surprise, the speedwell sprung a third leak, causing another return to England this time docking in Portsmouth. It was now early September. After being advised of the terrible weather conditions they might be faced with in the Atlantic, the longer they delayed, the leaders realised they had no choice but to abandon the Speedwell. It is strongly believed by many that that is exactly what the captain of the Speedwell wanted, having no wish to undertake such a perilous journey. It is recorded that the Speedwell went on to make many more profitable, shorter voyages for many years afterwards, which rather confirms this proposition. Back to our story. The loss of the Speedwell was a dire event for the Pilgrims, as vital funds had been wasted on the ship. Its cargo of tools and other vital supplies, which were considered very important to the future success their settlement in America. Twenty of the passengers from Speedwell joined the already overcrowded Mayflower, while others returned to Holland. More delays. They were forced to wait in Portsmouth for seven more days until the wind picked up. William Bradford was especially worried. While we lie here waiting for as fair a wind as can blow, Our victuals will be half eaten up, I think, before we go from the coast of England. And if our voyage lasts long, we shall not have a month's victuals when we come arrive in America. It was common knowledge that in early September the western gales turned the North Atlantic into a dangerous place to sail. Mayflower's provisions were already quite low when departing Southampton and they became lower still by delays of more than a month. The passengers had been on board the ship this entire time, feeling worn out and in no condition for a very taxing, lengthy Atlantic journey cooped up in the cramped spaces of a small ship, and this was made worse by them being joined by 20 more from Speedwell. When Mayflower sailed from Plymouth alone on September 16th, 1620, With what Bradford called a prosperous wind, she carried 102 passengers plus a crew of 25 to 30 officers and men, bringing the total aboard to approximately 130. At about 180 tonnes, she was considered a smaller cargo ship, having travelled mainly between England and Bordeaux with clothing and wine. She was not considered to be an ocean-going ship, nor was she in good shape, as she was sold for scrap four years after her Atlantic voyage. She was a high-built craft forward and aft, measuring approximately 100 feet in length and about 25 feet at her widest point. The living quarters for the 102 passengers were cramped, with the leaving area about 80 feet by 20 feet and the ceiling about five feet high. With couples and children packed closely together for a trip lasting two months, a great deal of trust and confidence was required among everyone aboard. I just don't dare think what the toilet facilities were like. John Carver, one of the leaders of the ship, often inspired the pilgrims with a sense of earthly grandeur and divine purpose. He was later called the Moses of the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims believed they had a covenant like the Jewish people of old. America was to be the new promised land. The first half of the voyage proceeded over calm seas and under pleasant skies. Then the weather changed with continuous northeasterly storms. For days, huge waves as high as 50 feet crashed against the ship's side and over the decks. The ship rolled and twisted dangerously as water leaked in through the smallest gaps. The passengers remained soaked for days as they lay clinging on to each other, shivering with cold and fear in their cramped quarters. In the midst of one storm, the servant of the physician, Samuel Fuller, died and was buried at sea. A baby was also born, christened Oceanus Hopkins. During another storm, so fierce that the sails could not be used, the ship was forced to drift without hoisting its sails for days or else risk losing her masts. The storm washed a male passenger, Don Howland, overboard. He'd sunk about 12 feet until a crew member threw out a rope, which Howland managed to grab, and he was safely pulled back on board. The passengers were forced to crouch in semi-darkness below deck as ocean swells rose to over a hundred feet. With waves tossing the boat in different directions, men held on to their wives, who themselves held on to their children. Water was soaking everyone and everything above and below deck. In mid-ocean, the ship came close to being totally disabled, and may have had to return to England or risk sinking. A storm had so badly damaged its main beam that even the sailors despaired. But, by a stroke of luck, one of the colonists had a metal jack screw that he had purchased in Holland. The jack screw was a tool that would have assisted the pilgrims in the construction of their new homes. They used it to secure the beam which kept it from cracking further thus maintaining the seaworthiness of the the vessel. All told, despite the crowding, unsanitary conditions and the seasickness, there was only one fatality during the voyage. The ship's cargo included many stores that supplied the pilgrims with the essentials needed for their journey and future lives. It is assumed that they carried tools, food and weapons, as well as some live animals, including dogs, sheep, goats and poultry. The ship also held two small 21-foot boats powered by oars or sails. There were also artillery pieces aboard which they might need to defend themselves against enemy European forces or, indeed, indigenous tribes. On November nineteenth, 1620, they sighted present-day Cape Cod, They spent several days trying to sail south to their planned destination of the colony of Virginia, where they had obtained permission to settle from the company of merchant adventurers. But the strong winter seas forced them to return to harbour at Cape Cod, known today as Provincetown Harbour, and they set anchor on November the 21st. It was before setting anchor that the male pilgrims and non-pilgrim passengers whom members of the congregation referred to as strangers, drew up and signed the Mayflower Compact. Among the resolutions in the compact were those establishing legal order and meant to quell increasing strife within the ranks. Captain Miles Standish was selected to make sure the rules were obeyed, as there was a consensus that discipline would need to be enforced to ensure the survival. Of the planned colony. Once they all agreed to settle and build a self governing community, they came ashore.
1: The moment the pilgrims stepped ashore was described by William Bradford, the second governor of the Plymouth colony. Being thus arrived in a good harbour and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element the ill-prepared and poorly supplied colonists lost over half of their population through a multitude of problems, including hunger, scurvy, other diseases during their first bitter winter on the North American mainland. In the spring of 1621, Winslow and the others attended what would become known as the First Thanksgiving, which is obviously now celebrated greatly in America, isn't it? More than Christmas, really. The people who had survived the winter all worked hard to provide enough food and shelter for themselves. This was so time-consuming that when the Mayflower left on her return voyage, they were not able to send back furs and other supplies William Weston expected to repay his investment with. Amidst criticism from Thomas Weston for not loading up the returning Mayflower with goods for the investors, William Bradford sent a letter stating the troubles encountered by the Mayflower passengers for which he blamed weston and stated that governor carver had worked himself to death that spring and the loss of him and other industrious men's lives cannot be valued at any price the following year the ship fortune arrived at plymouth but again thomas weston had inadequately supplied the ship for the colony With winter approaching, the colonists only had half the needed supplies, but as William Bradford recorded, they all faced it bravely. And has not been mentioned so far, they were receiving help from a local tribe that in fact saved them. Despite the adversaries of the winter, the colonists were able to load the fortune for England with enough furs and other supplies to pay for over half of their indebtedness to the merchant adventurers. We thought the following was rather ironic. Having crossed the Atlantic, the fortune was attacked by the French as it came near the English coast and all the cargo was taken by the privateers. After that... We believe that Thomas Weston gave up on the enterprise, and as we know, the surviving pilgrims eventually went on to prosper.
0: Yeah, Edward Winslow uh, played a major role in the, uh, major part in the uh, existence of the um, colonists, and uh, hence he has a statue in Droitwich. Which um, there's an interesting thing here, but before the uh, Mayflower um, Pilgrims went over, there was lots of other settlements in uh, America, and one wonders why they were treated so well. In the, you know, now, for example, the Pilgrims were the sort of looked upon as the first people to go over there. They set the what became the Constitution, etc., and all the other um, groups that landed there seemed to be forgotten completely.
2: I think some of the groups just faded out and died.
0: Yeah, but not all I don't think all of them did. No, not all, all, of them, all of them, but quite, yeah. quite a few did. Mind you, this lot nearly did. Yeah. Um, half of them died on the first um, first Christmas. Over yeah, there, the first yeah. winter, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there we are. That's a long story. I hope that didn't bore you too much, but uh, it's interesting. quite interesting. Yeah. Anyway, um To cheer us all up a bit, let's have some more of these court things, shall we? Yeah. Um, Page two, we have... um, uh, The first one we've got is uh, Alan and Kate. Number six, Alan and Kate.
2: Can you describe what the person who attacked you
0: looked
1: like? No, he was wearing a mask. Hmm, what was he wearing under the mask? Um, his face
0: <laughs> right, and this is number seven, and this is uh Kate and me. How was your first marriage terminated by death and whose death was it terminated?
1: Have a guess. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: is American courts. Can you just I mean, can you imagine sitting there listening to this? This is um, Alan and me. The youngest son, the 20-year-old, how old is he?
2: Um, He's 20, much like your IQ. (laughs) Yes,
0: thank you. Okay, there's always some more on the next page. Uh, We have uh, number nine, Alan and Kate.
1: Uh, Doctor, did you say he was shot in the woods? No, I said he was shot in the Lumber region.
0: Hmm. Alan and me. Doctor, how
1: many of your autopsies have you
0: performed on dead people?
2: Well, all of them. The live ones put up too much of a fight.
0: Kate and Alan.
2: What is your date of birth? July the 18th. What year? Every year. Alan, how far apart were the vehicles at the time of the collision? <laughs> 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 I didn't realise that one until I read it out. <laughs> Alan and I. Doctor,
0: before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then, it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? No. Well, how can you be so sure, Doctor?
2: Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) ludicrous, wasn't it? Shall we do the rest? There's only a couple more. We might as well finish off. Of course, then we can have a, a little break that you won't notice at home. Uh, Alan and Kate.
1: How old is your son, the one living with you? 38 or 35, I can't remember which. How long has he lived with you? 45 years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kate Nye. Now, Doctor, is it true that when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until next morning?
1: Did you actually pass the bar exam? (laughs) And lastly, Alan and Kate.
2: Any suggestions as to what prevented this from being a murder trial instead of an attempted murder trial?
1: The victim lived? (laughs) OK,
0: that's uh, the end of those, I'm afraid. They're quite good, I think, some of them. Alan, that's for you.
2: I've made my own coffin and we'll use it as a bookshelf, Worcester councillor. The The councillor built her own coffin, but for now we'll be using it as a bookshelf at her home. Councillor Cherry Stalker spent six weeks building her coffin at an adult woodworking course. She said that she made the bizarre choice in the hope that she will save her family money on funeral services. Councillor Stalker said... Originally, I had an idea to make a plant stand, but I had second thoughts and decided to make something more useful. I knew I would be wanting to make a coffin, She added.
0: <laughs> it's ludicrous, isn't it? And this is a counsellor, you know. <laughs> I wonder if Robin knows uh, the Roger, I mean, Roger knows her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, this is uh, funny stories from around the world. Um, a Brazilian man appeared at his own funeral (laughs) apparently um, there was a car crash in Brazil and a man looking extremely like the chap that turned up at his own funeral uh, was in the car and identified by his brother who hadn't actually seen uh, the real man for about four or five months and uh, he was um, you know buried well he had coffee made the whole family turned out you know and the chap was told about it in a bar or something he said "Oh, aren't you, aren't you dead <laughs> <laughs> he said why did you think I was dead he said oh, this Isn't an article in the paper or something you're being buried this afternoon <laughs> so, so he rather rushed to the occasion turning up to the sort of immense shock of his whole family <laughs> which must have been quite frightening Yeah. And there's another one I rather like, and then we'll. um, uh, A suspected burglar texts newspaper his own photograph. And this was because he didn't like the one they were putting in the paper that was issued by the police. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Alan, you've brought something along. What have you got?
2: I've got sort of a continuation of something I was talking about last time, ageing. I'm very conscious of this ageing business now. <laughs> um, I don't
1: know why. <laughs> do say that, I've got a birthday tomorrow.
2: <laughs> the last time I spoke to you, I investigated age in general terms. After reading an article in the Sunday Times by Matt Rudd on this matter, I'm tempted to delve into this subject on a slightly more personal basis. You write... Remember that at 90 years of age I was counted in at 0.7% of the UK population. But, how old do I really feel? Actual numbers have very little significance. I've known several people in their 30s who were starting to act like old age pensioners. Now there's a point to consider. Nomenclature. Should we refer to ourselves more as senior citizens? What is it that makes us feel old? Is there anything we can do about it? There's not a lot we can do about our early life. As children, we followed what our parents did. Those early years formed the base for our own adult life with regard to diet, exercise, social life, etc. So, how old do you feel? How do you measure that? For me and most of my contemporaries, this just comes down to the things we can no longer do or find great difficulty in achieving. The list of annoyances is almost endless, isn't it? Putting your socks on, cutting toenails, tying shoelaces, opening screw cap jars, oh, and actors on TV mumbling instead of speaking properly. Then, of course... There are the self-inflicted conditions like long-term sporting injuries which result in impaired joint mobility and poor choice of diet leading to chronic conditions which limit our enjoyment of life. How often have you mentioned in conversation an event or person you recall from earlier days only to see blank looks on the faces of your friends? A reference to your favourite film actress will occasionally bring the response of Oh yeah, my dad liked her. Mind you, this ability to dredge up little-known facts does enable some crossword puzzles to be completed or another question to be answered correctly on the pub quiz. Are you conscious of how other people view you these days? An example happened to me very recently while on a walk round my village. (coughs) Now, although I'm still reasonably fit, my sense of balance is impaired somewhat, so I will use a walking stick on occasions. I waited at the curb for an oncoming motorist to pass when he stopped a couple of yards away and waved me across the road. I thought to myself, what a polite driver. Then realised he'd noticed my stick and thought he would do his bit to assist an aged, infirm pedestrian. Flipping cheek. In Perth, Western Australia, they have an organised method on public transport by displaying notices asking younger people to give up their seat to older passengers. I have to say that this is always done with a smile and a kind word. There was even less formality when we visited a national park in the USA some years back. We noticed that there was a special rate for senior citizens. And started to retrieve our passports, driving license to prove our eligibility. We asked the guy at the window which proof he would require. He just smiled and said Well you're folks, you tell me you're a seniors and that'll be good enough for me. Apologies for the accent. Before I retired, I worked in the environmental health department at the local council, investigating all sorts of related complaints. Inevitably, somewhere the information was imparted freely that I'm 82, now you know. And now, listeners, I'm doing exactly the same. (laughs) One of the points that comes up often in our lives is positive attitude. This is a mindset that is more easily talked about than achieved. As a former racing cyclist, I've maintained the opinion that this has enabled me to achieve a good state of fitness which would carry me over into my dotage, providing I continued cycling, but at a more modest rate. I recently attended a lecture by Dr Gordon Wright, who is a fitness coach for the British Cycling Federation. He's persuaded me to amend my thoughts on fitness for older people. There was no criticism of my existing programme, which has attained a good stage of cardio fitness, but I needed a more active weight training programme. The simple principle is, you use them or lose them. When you think about it, we all need muscles to complete the many tasks of just existing. But if we're not using them, then atrophy will set in. They'll just wither away. Gordon's lecture was illuminating and I began rethinking my approach to one of a more overall standard of fitness. I really didn't like the idea of throwing weights around. I did like one of his recommendations of indoor rowing which exercises about 90% of the body's musculature. I remember that some years ago when I was a member of a gym, I really enjoyed that part of training, so I'm now down there three times a week, gradually but gently building up a better overall standard of fitness. (coughs) Dare I suggest that it might prove useful if you assessed your own standard of fitness, relative to age of course. And take the first step to improvement, but please don't go mad at it. Little and often is the best way to start there's plenty of advice available at the library or on Google. So, as Wilfred Pickles used to say, have a go. Uh, what was that name again? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's funny, um, one of the articles I found um, <laughs> that actually follows that one beautifully. Kate's going to read to you now. It's about a woman of 108 who also gives her opinion of how she lived so long.
1: All right, right, this is, um, yes, certainly a lady of 108. Some people swear by exercise. Others stress the importance of getting enough sleep. But for Julia Iverson, the secret to a long life is more indulgent, a daily glass of red wine. Mrs Iverson celebrated her 108th birthday this week with staff and residents at Brampton Lodge Care Home in Warrington. Carers joked that she can always tell if her preferred tipple is watered down and praised her as a lovely and kind person. Born in Denmark in 1914, Mrs Iverson served in Kenya with the Women's Royal Naval Service during the Second World War and went on to have three daughters and five grandchildren. Since the pandemic began, she has tested positive for COVID-19 twice, shaking off the virus both times after suffering only mild symptoms. Her daughter, Rosalind Barclay said that she was a great and supportive mum and a keen singer who kept a positive outlook on life. She added that she still talks a lot and is fond of reminiscing about her childhood. Mrs Iverson also finds it amazing how different life is now after recently learning about emails and comparing them to telegrams that she used to send. That's rather a sweet story. (laughs) And Um, I've got an item then. After that, it's uh, by by what mechanism do we recall past memories? In the 1960s, researchers performed an intriguing experiment on goldfish. The fish was placed in a T-shaped tank and taught to swim up to the crossbar, then turned to a particular direction. This is simply accomplished by placing food at one or other end of the crossbar. Before the experiment begins, however, some alcohol is added to the water. When the goldfish, by now a little bit tipsy, has learned which way to turn, it is sobered up by being placed in clean water. Further experiments show that it is now liable to have forgotten what it learnt, but put it back into alcoholic water and it will remember it again. Humans have shown a similar tendency. Learn something when you are drunk and you might forget it when you sober up. Next time you get drunk, however, it may well all come back to you. These are examples of memory being context-dependent, which supports a theory of memory recall known as encoding specificity. A memory under this theory is not stored in isolation, but together with the situation in which it was formed. The other main theory is that recalling a memory is a two-stage process, first involving search and retrieval, then recognition. Recognition that at least would explain why recognizing something you have seen before it is much easier to process than recalling what it looked like recognition only involves one of the two stages of recall in either case the mechanism by which it all happens has yet to be discovered okay. so that's all our our aging uh, this,
0: contribution this this uh... <laughs> Well, these these stories come under the heading "A Treasure Trove of Childhood." They're essays um, that were found um, recently and published. Um, uh, but these essays were written by uh, a class of 1937 girls in the class of 1937, and uh, these these are brief excerpts from uh, excerpts from them. Uh, Madge, twelve, and this is 1937, said Sunday. Was a nice day. The only thing that was wrong, that there was no Easter eggs for me. All the others had one, and this was heard. <laughs> what they say, and you're Molly twelve on heaven. I think heaven is just another world like this one. We live at the present, except they might not have pictures and dance halls. <laughs> <laughs> Annie thirteen on money. <clears throat> You use money to buy clothes, shoes and toffees, etc. At the weekend, when you get the wages, you think you can have a good time. But no. There's the rent, club and other things to pay for. By Monday, it's nearly all gone. <laughs> <laughs> this is Joan 12. This is all 1937, remember. Yeah. I should very much like to own a farm in the hills of Wales. I should have a garden at the front, full of rambling roses, forget-me-nots, and other dainty-looking flowers. Don't mention animals at all. <laughs> also, any of the hard work that goes along with the farm. Jessie on mill work, and she's thirteen. When you work in a mill, it makes your mother a great deal of washing, for you have to two changes of pinafoils a week. But if you work in an office, you don't need a penny for, of any description, just a clean dress. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one that's here, Amelia twelve, on what she learns at home. At home, this is a twelve-year-old. Remember, this is quite good. At home, I learn to be polite and ladylike. I also learn to clean and sweep the house. If anyone's ill, I also make the beds. Iron, wash the pots, and many other little odd jobs. Sometimes I do the mopping. I sometimes say no to something they wish me to do, but I really should have said yes. (laughs) Yeah, they're quite good, aren't they? And that's all in 1937. Okay, Alan, you've got a story from Belgium. Yes, I have.
2: A Belgian farmer moved a stone and accidentally redrew Belgium's border with France. In 1820, France and Belgium literally set their border in stone, placing 300 pound markers in the ground, delineating the boundary. But this year, one of these border stones was accidentally moved in Belgium's favour, sparking a minor international incident. The kerfuffle spread far and wide in May 2021 and began with a harmless farmer in the Belgian town of Erkelin. Naively moving the 300-pound historic monument out of the way of his tractor, the man had unwittingly expanded Belgium's territory by 10,000 square feet. He had no idea... That the Erkaline border stone had been placed there following the defeat of Napoleon, or served as a geopolitical marker, nor had he anticipated the international fiasco. His actions would spawn, after a local history buff noticed it, the alteration, and then the French caught wind of it. I fully trust my Belgian counterpart, who did what was necessary with the farmer," said Aurelie Velenec, the French mayor of. Boussigny roc whose small commune was directly affected by the move. We asked him to move the stone back, and should he not cooperate, then the Ministry of Foreign Affairs would get involved. Fortunately, authorities on both sides of the border found the incident more amusing than a brazen act of hostility, and the farmer complied with their request to return the stone to its original location. Villeneuve joked, We should be able to avoid a new border war now.
0: (laughs) It's like it wasn't Russia. (laughs) Yeah. OK, now we've got a few quiz questions now. Um, As as before, you know, just give a second or two after I've asked the question, and then if either of you know the answer, then uh, let it go. Right, number one, who issued the first credit card in 1950? It was either American Express, Barclay Card or Diners Club. Okay. Barclay card. Who? <coughs> Barclay Card? Nope. Diners Club. Yep, you're right. Oh, wow. Diners Club, one to Alan. Although we're not counting. <laughs> Why well, aren't we counting? <laughs> of course you're winning. <laughs> in what TV programme would you have found in 1964 Terry Collier and Bob Ferris?
2: The Lightly Lad. You Sorry.
0: didn't wait. you to <laughs> lose a point. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Lightly Lads, you're quite right. All uh, right, this is um, a history one. Who was the first Holy Roman Emperor? Okay. okay. Charlie Main. Charlemagne. Oh. Charlemagne, yes. Really? Charlie Main. mate. All right. I think he was English, wasn't he? I can't remember now. Uh, which is the world's largest desert? Okay. Yes. No? Silence. Begins with S.
1: Sahara. Yeah, right. Okay.
0: <laughs> the very first car to be issued with the number plate in nineteen oh three. What was the number? A one. Yep, A1. Mm. Good guess. I've still got the car. Yeah. <laughs> I keep changing the number player. I wonder if there is a number play around. There must be a number play A1 somewhere. I'm it sure must there there is. Definitely, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, there
1: is.
0: Who owned, or who, which, which Member of Parliament owned the boat Morning Cloud?
1: Oh. Oh, Who's yes. the Prime Minister. Yeah.
0: Ted Heath. Ted yes. Ted right, Heath. Yeah. So Ted Heath.
1: Yeah.
0: Number seven. Uh, this is sort of associated with Titanic. Um, it's about signals, Morse codes, etc. What signal replaced CQD? Okay.
2: Yeah. Guessing SRS. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, I think...
0: I think I think it was said that the Titanic was the first ship to send the signal, but I'm not exactly sure that's true. But um, certainly would have been one of the first. Uh, CQD, I think, was um, sort of said to become quick disaster or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> something like that, along those lines. But I don't know whether that was true or just make up by somebody. All right. Where does the Channel Tunnel come in the top five tunnels? So you've got tunnels all over the world. Where does the Channel Tunnel come in the top five? I
2: would say second.
0: Yes, dead right, dead right. That's a very good guess. Okay, Uh, this is going back to the 20s, 30s. What was the name of the group of... British artists, intellectuals, and writers—people like uh, Virginia Woolf, John Maynard Keynes, and E.M. Forrester etc.—they they were in a famous group of people known mm. as oh. the Bloomsbury Group. Brimsy. Yes, yes Bloomsbury, that's right. Yes, yes. And this is the last question here today. Uh, Turner painted the Fighting Temeraire, and. Um, did she actually fight in the Battle of Trafalgar? Fifty fifty. I don't think yes. so. Yes. Kate was right, yes she did. Yes, you know there was two columns, uh, Nelson led one column yes. with the uh victory and the fighting tremoneer a uh, treme a uh, treme I can't say the word now. The French one. <laughs> yeah, no, it was <laughs> <laughs> led the other column. And and that's why yes, it was it was Temeraire. It was the, uh, it definitely was there, I think, without doubt, unless they're lying. <laughs> uh, oh, nice. No, uh, Kate, okay, yes, there's a little story for you, if you wouldn't
1: mind. All right. <clears throat> uh, right. Leona Fay's birthday was coming up, and the soon to be three year old had a special request for her mother. Leona, who lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, is a fan of Disney's The Lion King, and she wanted her cake to feature her favourite character, Mufasa. Mufasa sorry. But not just any depiction of Mufasa, she wanted a dead Mufasa on her cake. Of course, Leona's mother, Alison, wanted to know why. Because, she said, everyone will be too sad to eat the cake, and it will be all left over for me to eat.
2: <laughs> well, you got something right there. there. Right. Oh yes. <coughs> the uh, a statue of Sir Rowland Hill can be found in Kidderminster. Now Sir Rowland Hill was born in Kidderminster and is best known for inventing the first adhesive postal stamp, the penny black. In the 1830s, postage was paid by the recipient, not the sender. Hill argued that there should be a better system and came up with a flat rate, regardless of distance. The Penny Black was issued in May 1840 and was the world's first adhesive postage stamp. Hill was interested in the Postal Service from the age of eight, but another interesting fact about his childhood was that by the age of twelve, he was a teacher at his father's school. Sir Roland Hill later set up a revolutionary new school which had heating, a science laboratory, and a swimming pool. By 1820, when he was only 25, Hill became in charge of the day to day running
0: of the school. That was the second statue we've mentioned today. Uh, I've got another one here, and I, I promise it's nowhere near as long as the Mayflower story. Uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, in Bromsgrove, there is a statue celebrating the life of A.E. houseman, who died at the age of 77 in 1936. Houseman was one of the foremost classicists of his age and has been ranked as one of the greatest scholars and poets who ever lived. One of the works he is probably best remembered for is his cycle of poems, *A Shropshire Lad*. The wistful, the wistfully that sorry that wistfully evoke the dooms and disappointments of youth in the English countryside. This example from the book is called *Loveliest of Trees*, the cherry tree. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now, is hung with bloom along the bough, and stands. About the woodland ride, wearing white, for Eastertide. Now, one of my threescore years and ten, Twenty will not come again, and take from seventy springs a score. It only leaves me fifty more. And since, to look at things in bloom, fifty springs are little room, About the woodland I will go, to see the cherry, hung, With snow. Alan, a little more. Alfred Edward
2: Houseman was an English classical scholar and poet. His cycle of poems, A Shropshire Lad, that Barry just read to you an example from, their simplicity and distinctive imagery appealed strongly to Edwardian taste and to many... Early 20th century English composers, both before and after the First World War. Through their song settings, the poems became closely associated with that era and with Shropshire itself. Houseman was one of the foremost classicists of his age and has been ranked as one of the greatest scholars who ever lived. He established his reputation publishing as a private scholar and on the strength and quality of his work was appointed Professor of Latin at University College London and then at the University of Cambridge. Yet, like so many men of his time, he had to conceal the emotions he sometimes felt towards members of his own sex. Kate will tell us a little bit more.
1: In 1942, Lawrence Houseman A's younger brother deposited an essay entitled Houseman's De Amic- Amicitia Amicita, in the British Library with the proviso that it was not to be published for 25 years. The essay discussed A. E. Houseman's homosexuality and his love for Moses Jackson, who died in 1923. Despite the conservative nature of the times and his own caution in public life, Houseman was quite open in his poetry, and especially in A Shropshire Lad, about his deeper sympathies. In more poems, he buries his love for Moses Jackson in the very act of commemorating it, as his feelings of love are not reciprocated and must be carried unfulfilled to the grave. Because I liked you better than suits a man to say... It irked you, and I promised to throw the thought away. To put the world between us, we parted, stiff and dry. Goodbye, said you, forget me. I will, no fear, said I. If here, where clover whitens, the dead man's knoll you pass, and no tall flower to meet you starts in the trefford grass. halt by the headstone naming, the heart no longer stirred, And say the lad that loved you was the one that kept his word. Back to Alan for some commemorations.
2: There have been so many, I shall read you just a few. From 1947, University College London's Academic Common Room was dedicated to his memory as the Houseman Room. Blue plaques followed, the first being on Byron Cottage in Highgate, in 1969, recording the fact that a Shropshire lad was written there. More followed, placed on his Worcestershire birthplace, his homes and school in Bromsgrove. The latter were encouraged by the Houseman Society, which was founded in the town in 1973. Another initiative was the statue in Bromsgrove High Street, showing the poet striding with walking stick in hand. It was unveiled on the 22nd of March, 1985. The blue plaques in Worcestershire were set up on the centenary of a Shropshire lad in 1996. I could go on for page after page, but I think you must agree from what you've heard, A.E. Houseman was a credit to Worcestershire.
0: Kate, I've just got another poem here if you'd like to read it. I think you're
1: the best at reading poems. I don't know about that. Get on and off the hook. This is a Shropshire lad. <laughs> when I was one and twenty, I heard a wise man say, Give crowns and pounds and guineas, but not your heart away. Give pearls away and rubies, but keep your fancy free. But I was one and twenty, no use to talk to me. When I was one and twenty, I heard him say again, The heart out of the bosom was never given in vain. "'Tis paid with sighs aplenty, and sold for endless rue. And I am two and twenty, and oh, tis true, tis true.'" <laughs> Good.
0: A woman in South Korea, I think a lot of people have to take their tests a few times, but this woman in South Korea took 950 times to pass the written. <laughs> 950 times to pass the written. Uh, examination for a driving test. <laughs> Nine hundred and fifty. Mm-hmm. Do you think she would have given up... Mind you, what age would she be for the time she did it? So, anyway, there's another thing here. Oh, the, and you can... There's, uh, uh, Kate's got a, uh, a story on honey uh, following this, and then... But um, following that, uh, Alan has a story about another parrot. But, first of all, this story... Would not have been a story in France, I can tell you, OK? A man spoke of his shock when he bit into a McDonald's burger and discovered a dead snail. <laughs> told you it wouldn't be a story in France. The snail was found in a South Carolina snack. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon, The South Carolina stack. And Mr Griffiths added he was keeping the meal, which included the snail, in his freezer as evidence. I won't tell you where he got it from
1: (laughs) Kate Right Honey is more than just a sweet treat A natural remedy for millennia Here are six reasons to reach for the sticky stuff now It's great for the skin If you're suffering from a nasty flare-up Honey is brilliantly effective As a skin saviour that won't cost the earth Its antibacterial and anti-inflammatory properties Can calm and soothe irritated skin It's also loaded with enzymes and other nutrients that nourish and cleanse the surface. Honey is also a natural humectant, meaning it hydrates the skin by drawing in moisture from the air. Try mixing two tablespoons of raw or manuka honey with one tablespoon of uncooked porridge for a DIY exfoliating mask. But it's good for the heart. Honey is jam-packed with polyphenols and helpful antioxidants that have been linked to increased blood flow and preventing blood clots from forming. One study in rats showed honey can protect the heart from oxidation stress oxidative stress which can contribute to heart attacks and stroke although more research needs to be done on the link between long-term human heart health and honey. It gives you an energy boost. As a carbohydrate made up of fructose and glucose, honey makes for a high-powered natural energy snack. Unlike refined sugar, it also contains small amounts of proteins and minerals, such as B6, riboflavin and amino acids, compounds, compounds that help the body to met- metabolise bad cholesterol and fatty acids. It can heal wounds and burns when applied topically. Researchers believe honey can have a healing effect on painful burns and lesions. One study published in the Diabetes Research and Clinical Practice Journal found a 43.4% success rate of using honey on diabetic foot ulcers, while another published in the Scientific World Journal found honey could also be an effective home remedy for reducing painful hemorrhoids. I won't go into that. Um, It can treat dandruff A 2001 study conducted by the Dubai Specialised Medical Centre found that raw honey can be used to treat scaling, itching and hair loss This is thought to be thanks to its antibacterial, antifungal and antioxidant properties Fancy giving it a go? Mix two tablespoons of vegetable oil with equal amounts of honey and apply it to your hair Leave it on for 15 minutes and rinse off before you shampoo. And good luck. Uh, It can help suppress a cough too. In 2012, a study published in the journal Paediatrics found that children with upper respiratory tract infections experienced more cough relief after drinking 1.5 tablespoons of Labete honey 30 minutes before bedtime than those that received a placebo. So, there you are. If you've got a jar of honey, use it.
0: Okay. before we go over to Alan, uh, these are ads that actually found their way into newspapers all over the world. Um, There's a few ones about dogs here. Lost, small brown poodle, neutered like one of the family. There is a world. (laughs) Four poster to bed, 101 years old perfect for the antique lover. <laughs> Slight ambiguity peculiarity there. Wanted part-time married girls for soda fountain in sandwich shop. Yes, I like this one. You've got to think about it. Man wanted to work in dynamite factory. Must be willing to travel.
2: <laughs> Alan, <laughs> good. That would power. <laughs> right. Um... This is all about a, a parrot, a man-hating parrot. Whether it was Sky the Parrot's hatred of men, her tendency to shriek, come on, before biting, or a habit of singing, do, 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 repeatedly, we do not know. But the thieves who took the pure African grey could clearly put up with her no longer. The pilfered parrot was returned to her owner, Sarah White, over the weekend, a month after being stolen in a burglary. An appeal for the beloved pet had warned that she was not to be messed with. Skye was taken from White's home in the hamlet of Tusmore, near Bicester, Oxfordshire, on June 18th, along with jewellery that belonged to White's grandmother. White had returned home to find her bedroom ransacked and her beloved pet no longer in her cage. After an appeal supported by the animal charity Beauty's Legacy, the 20-year-old bird was recovered from a family home in Bedfordshire, 40 miles away. Sky's new owners had recognised the appeal's unique description of the feisty parrot and got in touch to help her send her back home. In her appeal for Skye's return, White had said, Oh, she hates men. Only likes me. We think she was bundled into a laundry basket and taken. No food or drink. I'm absolutely devastated. I just want her back safe and sound. She makes very distinctive noises. She says, come on, all the time. She says her name, sings do-do-do, and makes kissing noises. She also said that Sky plucked her feathers round her neck, couldn't fly very well, and walked everywhere. I hope whoever has got her has lost all her fingers from her biting them (coughs) and didn't get any sleep last night. (coughs) Excuse me. After her return, she said they, the occupants of the property, had seen the appeal and contacted us. I knew from the pictures that they sent that it was Skye. We went to recover her, and I had a little cry in the car because it was quite emotional. She was really happy to see me and was talking to me. (coughs) White said the sky looked fine when she picked her up and had not lost any weight. When we got home, I gave her all her favourite food because I doubted that she'd been having those. I gave her nuts, vegetables, all the things she really likes. She was a very happy bird. she probably not had a bath, so she was able to do that as well. It's been nice to hear her voice like this morning. When I was going to work, she was telling me to come on and get going. Scribe was found with help from the charity Beauty's Legacy. It was founded by Lisa Dean following the disappearance of her elderly cat five years ago. The group began as a voluntary group based on social media and was granted charity status in April this year. It has since reunited over 700 animals. That sounds like a good one.
0: Mm. Parrots, there's often parrots, there's another story here about parrots, but I won't, uh, go into, have you got another story there Kate? I was
1: going to talk about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon.
0: Very well, talk about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did the Hanging Gardens of Babylon ever exist? According to legend, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, were built around 600 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon for his wife, Ametis of Media, in Iran, who was pining for the trees and plants of her homeland. The gardens were written about and highly praised by Greek historians of the first century BC, which was about a 100 years after they were said to have been destroyed in an earthquake. The earlier Greek historian Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century BC, is said to have included the hanging gardens in his own list of the seven wonders. But this list has not survived and there is no definite reference to the gardens in any of his known writings. Curiously, neither is there any known reference to them in Babylonian writings of the time. Since the site of Babylon was rediscovered in the 19th century, archaeological excavations have produced some evidence that match parts of some descriptions of the hanging gardens, but none of this evidence is sufficient to confirm their existence. One suggestion is that the gardens never existed but were just intended as a poetic device. Another suggestion is that they did exist, but were in Nineveh, Nineveh, not Babylon, having been built by Sennacherib of Assyria in the 7th century BC. The oldest of the seven wonders would then have been a confused amalgamation between Sennacherib's real gardens and Nebuchadnezzar's mythical version. So we will never know. Hmm.
0: Just before your joke, Alan, I know you have a joke. (laughs) <laughs> this is uh, just a short thing uh, this uh, this is the headline this is my last film but I'm not retired yet says Michael Caine 88 now I, I know what my favourite line of his was I just wondered if everyone else thinks the same thing it was in the Italian job and it was
1: you were only supposed to blow the doors off
0: well, actually, it was the bloody doors off. Wasn't it? Okay. Right. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors <laughs>
1: off. <laughs> so
0: everyone knows that line. I it's a famous line. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's, he's still um, doing. He's written two books recently, and um, he's still working at eighty-eight. You know? mm. Do you, well, you you you're active as hell, like ninety odd, aren't you? Ninety or ninety odd. Ninety odd. Oh, right,
2: okay. <laughs> Emphasis on the odd. <laughs>
0: This is uh, another one of those adverts. He uh, said, This is wanted widower with school aged children requires person to assume general housekeeping duties, must be capable of contributing to growth of family. <laughs> 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 Alan, your joke.
2: <laughs> right. <coughs> <coughs> I'm sorry about the croaky voice tonight. I thought you might be interested to hear an historical anecdote. You may have heard of a character called Jeremy Clarkson who writes about motoring in an amusing fashion and has recently branched out into farming. In a recent article in the Sunday Times, he drew attention to the short person syndrome and mentioned Russian President Putin and also. Adolf Hitler, who fall into that category. The following week, in Letters to the Editor, a correspondent remind us, reminded us that King Charles I was also of short stature and he started the English Civil War, after which he became even shorter.
0: <laughs> yes. He sort of lost his head over the whole thing, not he? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so did Donovan Cromwell in the end, didn't they? They dug him up to cut his head off. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> After yeah. Charles II came back. So let's have a look, see what the numbers uh, Three year old teacher needed for preschool, experience preferred. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're about to. Oh, nice. Actually, this one's nice. Joining nudist colony must washer and dryer. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> three Yorkshire terrier, eight years old, hateful little dog. <laughs> 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 oh, this one, there's, I'll give you two more. Uh, three puppies, half cocker spaniel, half sneaky neighbour's dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was that? Oh, there's another one here somewhere. I was just gonna know. Uh, oh, yeah. Three puppies, part German shepherd, part stupid dog. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that's just about it. So, I, um, Kate, uh, you know, I'd like to thank her for her uh, contribution tonight. And I have a piece of music I know she likes because she likes Feast of Fiddles. So I shall play this um, and then we stay good night afterwards, if that's all right. Yeah. that's a bit of that anyway I know it goes on for about five minutes that thing (laughs) it's a bit long (laughs) okay um, just before we say goodnight there's a couple of other things here Um, gay ball for sale (laughs) what what, No, basically what would you do with a gay ball other than eat it you know and um, this one you've got to think about this one nice parachute never opened only used once (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 okay that's um, I think that's about right time for the finish so good night from us good night Alan good night
2: everybody good,
0: good night on. everyone and good night from me I hope you've enjoyed it I'm sorry the uh, Mayflower thing might have been a little bit too long but it is a good story and it's from Worcester bye now bye bye, bye.